What's up? You are listening to The Long Game, and I'm your host, David Lee Kim, co-founder of Omniscient Digital. In this episode, we chat with Emily Kramer. Emily is the co-founder of MKT1 Capital, an early stage fund helping founders and marketing leaders build high growth B2B companies. She also writes the MKT1 newsletter and teaches marketing leadership courses. Previously, Emily was a marketing executive who built the marketing teams from scratch at Asana, Carta, Ticketfly, which was acquired by Eventbrite, and Astro, which was acquired by Slack. In this conversation, we talk about her journey from marketing leader and operator to investor and advisor, and why there aren't more marketers turned investors, though that's changing now. She talks about the three inputs to developing a marketing strategy that startups should use to build a go-to-market that's suited to their unique circumstances. We discuss the importance of setting the right goals and how marketers often get this wrong, which results in them optimizing for the wrong thing. Alongside short-term goals, there also needs to be long-term big bets that will help marketing buck the trend of linear growth and set them up for long-term sustainable growth. I think you're going to learn a lot from this conversation. Here's my chat with Emily Kramer. Emily, welcome to The Long Game. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time. So I'm going to jump straight into this because something caught my eye when I was doing some research before all this, and I realized you're one of the few marketers turned investors that I've heard of. Like for whatever reason, um, a lot of the investors I see or go into VC t- tend to be from product. I don't know if there's, maybe I'm just like, yeah. no, it's, bias it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I've done an extensive amount of thinking about this because I have a fund now, an early stage fund, and we've brought a bunch of marketers into the fold to invest. And so I talked to tons of marketers about investing. So I've had a lot of these conversations about why haven't you invested before? And about 50% of the marketers um, have never invested, that have invested in my fund, have never invested as an angel or as an LP in funds. This is like their first venture investment. And that's kind of wild, right? Like, um, and, and so I thought a lot about it. So there's a lot of product investors. There's a lot of sales. And as far as go to market goes, you're going to see more sales investors than market, market, marketer investors. Um, and actually, my friend Jale, who's the co-founder at Mutiny, which is a mm-hmm. MarTech web personalization platform, um, who we invested in through our syndicate, and and I've known her for a long time. She actually did them did ran some numbers on this uh, for an announcement they were making, and she looked through Crunchbase, um, pulled some data there, and less than one percent of the investors on Crunchbase were marketers. That might be a little biased. Um, it might be a little biased mainly because the investors that are in Crunchbase tend to be like the the larger investors. So some casual angels might not be on there. So it might be a little skewed, but yeah, it's it's a very, very small number. But I didn't answer your question. You asked why. I'm just telling you that you're right. Um, I think there's a few reasons. I think that um, some of it's just like the inertia. So you tend to know the people best that are on your team at, at work. Like those tend to be the people you have the biggest affinity with. Like I think about all of my friends from the cor- former companies I've worked at, they're mostly the marketers with some exceptions. 
And so there's not a lot of marketer investors. It keeps perpetuating itself because the people that you know and you talk to and you keep a connection with are not investing. And the way you typically get, you know, your start as an angel investor specifically is through friends and other people who send you deals. And so if your friends aren't investing, you probably aren't getting those deals. So I think that's just one, you know, kind of silly, but that's one factor. I think also um, marketing has changed dramatically in, I don't know, give a time horizon, the last two decades, 15 years. I don't know. I've been doing marketing for over 15 years, which is weird to say. But I started um, working in 2006. I worked in advertising. So I started in marketing in 2006. And, you know, like the internet obviously obviously existed then. But, you know, mobile was not where it was. Like the first iPhone came out like while I was working at ad agencies. And like it just wasn't it, it wasn't the way things are. So marketing now is like much more of a full funnel activity than it ever was before. It's much more data driven and there's a lot more, especially within B2B, which is my focus, there's like a lot more go-to-market motions than there ever were. Like self-serve wasn't really a thing before or product-led growth or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't a thing. Um, when I was at Asana, I joined Asana in 2013. Um, we were freemium, as we called it then. And, and you know, doing this product-led growth self-serve model was not the norm. Like we were figuring a lot of it out. I mean, there were other companies figuring it out at the same time, but so much has changed. So all of that is like, why does it matter that it's changed? Well, marketing is now like such a, sometimes it's replacing a lot of the sales team, the marketing plus the product efforts. And so marketing has just become like a much more, in my opinion, like strategic lever. I'm not trying to like insult the marketers of yesteryear, but it's like, also, I don't think I've ever said yesteryear on a podcast, so that's the first time. Um, we'll, we'll check that off the list. Yeah, I think that marketing is becoming something that founders are seeking out more and more, that skill set. So early stage yeah. founders are realizing that to differentiate your product, you know, it's not just enough to build the best product. Um, it's the barrier to build great products is much lower than it ever was before. And so you have to win on distribution too, which is like the whole thesis of, of my, yeah. of my fund, so but you have to, to win on distribution too. So these, uh, these founders are seeking out this help. Yeah. So it's sort of the, the nature of the way the industry is moving where maybe, I don't know if you'll call it this, but I'll call it like commoditization of software yes. where folks are starting to better realize the value of marketing and distribution and building an audience. So now like marketers are getting pulled into the fold much earlier on like at the angel stage i mean i hope so yeah i mean that's and and it's in high demand like we there's not many funds i mean i would say there's no fund that does exactly what we do but there's not that many funds that focus on go to market and adding value there and so we're in really high demand investors pull us into deals we get great deal flow because of that founders recommend us we add a ton of value um, we try to be the most valuable small checks on a cap table. And that's across the board. That's not like of your marketing investors. And it's possible because there's such a gap here. Um, so there's such a gap. So something that I tell marketers is like, you can, even if you don't think you know enough to be an angel investor, you do because this is a massive gap in founder skill sets and investor skill sets. So part of our goal with what we're doing with our fund and bringing in marketers is to get more marketers in the fold. There's yeah. demand for it. And it's a great way to sort of, build your career and continue to, you know, kind of expand what you're doing as a marketer too. So I'm hoping that trend changes and I'm hoping to be part of that change. 
this might be a contentious question, but I marketing is one of those things where everyone has an opinion on everything and it's often not always backed by data, maybe just based on some, some one person's opinion, but how do you work through situations where maybe on a cap table, there's other investors who are not marketers, but feel like they should have a, a strong position uh, for the founder and you may need to be the person that says, why would you do that? <laughs> How do you work through those situations? Yeah, the biggest place that that comes up actually is in like PR strategy or or mm-hmm. or that we see it investing in early stages, like announcing your company. And there's just like a lot of really bad advice around like writing really formal press releases and other investors <laughs> telling them to write. So I see it. This is the thing that gets me the most. It's like, oh, write this really formal press release. Our lead investor, I won't mention any names, but some, you know, well-known lead investors will be like, oh yeah, you got to do this. I'm like, why would you do that? No, you need to write like a blog post where part of your story is um, the fundraising news, but the story needs to be like your vision and what's interesting. And it's not like a classic press release in the fir- in the third person. Like you want to like have a good hook for reporters and share information for them, but nobody's like working off of these formal press releases. This is just an example. This drives us crazy. Um, but we're not going to go like bad mouth all of the investors that give that recommendation. Right. What we're, what we do a lot of is we tell we've, we've seen a ton of patterns and a ton of mistakes that founders make. And we like to be super upfront with them about some of the mistakes that we've seen to avoid. And we also like to be super clear about areas we can help. So I think this is valuable for any investor or anyone really at work. It's like, where can you be the most helpful? And when should you come to me? And when are we maybe not the most helpful? So um, we tell founders very early on, when you're doing your launch, like when we first invest, when you're doing your launch announcement, when you're hiring a marketer, when you're hiring contractors and agencies. So hiring, full-time, part-time, announcements, website, please come to us because we see so many mistakes and so many lost cycles on all of these things that just please come to us. Don't go to anyone else. We've done this a bunch of times. Um, So it's just kind of like trying to uh, stop the problem before it starts. Um, And if they're getting conflicting advice, like that doesn't happen all the time. We tell them where we're coming from and why we think this is the case. And that's the best we can do. I think one of the things that I learned through advising before I was investing full time um, It's just that part of like not working somewhere and giving advice is it's not always going to be taken. And, you know, the best thing to do is to explain where you're coming from, explain your advice, and then like they're going to make their own decisions. And that's true at work, too. But I think when you're working inside of a company at work, I'm making it sound like what I do now isn't work. But when you're working inside of a company, um, you know, that's still the case that you might not be able to convince someone of something, but maybe you're a little bit more invested in the day to day and, and getting that point. You know, I think it's a little easier to kind of have the follow through. And when you're an advisor and investor, you kind of have to be okay with giving advice and maybe, you know, not having it, having it taken more so than I had to do when I was working in companies. Yeah. So I want to get to the advising and investing work that you've you've done and maybe Mm -hmm. to we can work up to there. Um, You've been at companies like Asana. You're at Astro that was acquired by Slack. You're at Carta. Could you walk us through maybe the career highlights or milestones that led you from uh, operator to angel and advisor to now fund manager? Like what, what were those pivot points? For sure. Um, 
So I think for me, early on, I mentioned this briefly, I don't know if to talk about this, but I actually started my career at ad agencies. Um, but specifically while I was at an ad agency, um, I helped launch an ad tech, um, we call it a demand side platform now, but, but basically an ad platform within the ad agency. Um, and all of that's to say that I kind of had this like early view into marketing tech early on. And I was very doing a lot of things that were like very data intensive and measuring success of really expensive ad campaigns for Microsoft primarily as the primary client all across all things Microsoft from like early days of Bing, which now has a resurgence. Um, had I mentioned Bing, you know, a year ago, people would have been like, is that what? still around? But now it's coming back as of AI. Um, but, uh, uh, and like Microsoft Zune, which was an MP3 player that like competed with iPod and all, but like, and like their, you know, deep B2B products and like Microsoft Office Vista. This was like a while ago, but I say all this to say that like, I had a really strong foundation for marketing ops and data and growth related things early on in my career that, um, has just been super valuable throughout, you know, throughout my, my time in marketing. So that was my early foundation. So I was very much like kind of on the growth side and on sort of the, the data side of things early on. Um, and then I went to business school, which I don't think is necessary as part of your marketing and tech journey, just for the record. Um, but I, I went to business school and, you know, no regrets, but if you think to be a successful marketer in tech, you need to go to business school. The answer is you don't. Um, but uh, I, I did go. And then um, I worked at Salesforce for my internship that summer in product marketing, which was a great experience. And, um, you know, learned a lot quickly from being inside of a large tech company. But I really realized that like startups were the earlier stage was the thing for me. And and so after business school, I knew I wanted to be at earlier stage startups. Um, and then I ended up at Ticketfly, um, which is now part of Eventbrite. And it's basically like a platform like like Ticketmaster, essentially. And so we were selling to venues and promoters. I love live music. Um, if you can see my background, you can I see can that tell, I have a whole yeah. bunch of Fillmore posters on my wall, free Fillmore posters from San Francisco from over the years in my office. Um, but I love live music. And so that was really an example of just like, that was when I thought that like loving the product personally, like mattered the most in picking a job, um, which I no longer think it does. Um which is a whole other topic. You would have been but, at Spotify if you did go down that path. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I just like loved going to shows and it was great at the time. Like everyone there loved going to shows and loved going to concerts. And like, so we did that like two or three nights a week and it was awesome. But um, I was at Ticketfly and I led product marketing and we called it digital marketing at the time, but it would now be called growth marketing because marketing likes to rebrand marketing all the time. Um, and so I, um, yeah, that was sort of my first, startup job and, and got a lot of experience there. Um, and um, then we used Asana at Ticketfly. And uh, a friend of mine was a recruiting coordinator at Asana. This is one of my favorite stories about you never know where you're going to get your best jobs from. And I went to a summer camp for a lot of my life in New Hampshire. And one of my campers, like literally I was a counselor when she was a camper, and she referred me to Asana. Like we remained in touch over what? the years. Yeah, we. I. I mean, I went to camp That's for. Crazy. I went and worked at camp for nine summers, and so and like worked there all through high school and college and stuff like that. So or not all through college, but like the first couple of years. And so yeah, I'd known Kelsey like her whole life since she was a kid, and she'd known me for a long time too. And she moved out here, and I was actually trying to help her get jobs. 
And then she got this recruiting coordinator job at Asana and she was like, they're starting to think about marketing, come in and talk to the, the, we didn't have titles, but like essentially the COO. And so I did. And that's how I got my Asana job is essentially the, the, you know, first marketer there and, and built that team and, and led marketing there for almost four years. So you just never know like what connections are going to be helpful. Um, but I used the Asana product. I really liked it. I liked what they were doing. Um, and I've, you know, went there and that like kind of made my career what it is now. So thanks, Kelsey. Um, and then actually Kelsey was on the recruiting side and moved over to the marketing team. So I helped her as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so then I was at Asana and, and yeah, that experience at Asana was one of those things where, you know, I was brought in as the, the only marketer at the time I was lucky to work. Well, there was a, there was a designer and there was someone kind of doing some marketing work, but, you know, to kind of build out this team, but I wasn't brought in as like head of marketing. I was brought in as like marketer. Um, and luckily the COO had had a background in marketing. So he was super helpful and I had some mentorship there and it was kind of like mine to lose to, or I thought of it this way. I don't know what other people thought, but I was like, I'm just going to keep hiring people and managing them and leading the team. And it's kind of a testament to if you like join a, you know, earlier growth stage startup, it was series B about 35 people at the time. Um, which like, you know, could be like a series A, but anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Funding rounds, funding rounds aside, it was 35 people and early in the revenue days. And, uh, you know, I just, my career really accelerated because, because of that. And because I just took the opportunity and tried to learn as much as I could and hire people that were smarter than I was and in certain areas that I didn't know about. And, and so that was, that was an amazing experience. When I joined Asana, they, if you're an old school Asana fan, which there are people out there that are, it used to have a blue and green logo before it was like the coral color that it is today. Yeah. And so we did like a huge rebrand and product new, we launched like a new version of the product and did a rebrand new website all on the same day back in 2015, which was kind of like a turning point for, for Asana. And so that was like probably the most fun thing that I worked on, um, and just in terms of like, we redid everything, launched it all on the same day. I love launches. I love web work. Um, and so, yeah, that was super fun there. Um, and we were just really figuring out like how to build, you know, the, the go-to-market motion that you see us on a have today, which is more of like a hybrid motion with a heavy emphasis on self-serve and land and expand and all of that stuff. So super fun. I think the other thing we did that, you know, is kind of a, a still a topic in marketing today is like, you know, we tried to build out sort of our own publications and like our own brand of thought leadership content and like community. So we were really content heavy strategy. Um, and uh, yeah, did experiment with like unique publications and things like that. So um, we were playing around with like, you know, become a media company back then, um, which is still like, should you do that or should you not? It's like still, still a, a question yeah. 10 years later. People think it's like a new thing, but it's not. This has been going on for a while. Like, should we be a media company too? Um, and then, um, I went to a seed funded company after that. I just was ready for a change, ready for something new, went to a seed funded company, um, helped them raise their series a, which was my like foray into like the fundraising experience. Um, and they were also in the collaboration space and, um, they got acquired just before their series B by, by Slack, but I had actually left about a year and a half in, um, I think there's such a thing as hiring too senior of a marketer early on. And I was just used to that fast growth and building a team and that I had at Asana. And when I left Asana, my team was like 25, 30 people. And, you know, the company was pretty large. And so I just felt like, honestly, I felt like they didn't need me that early on. Hmm. Um, 
I think it was helpful in very early days setting the stage, but they needed someone who, you know, wanted to be scrappy and like make make their career on on building a team from scratch there. So it was a little bit early for me. I mean, I was there for a year and a half, almost two years, but I was like, I want to go back to something bigger and, and faster growth. So I went to Carta when it was Series C, but they didn't have a marketing team at the time. So they had no... They had a couple of people doing some marketing work on the sales side, but no marketing team, lots of salespeople, um, 300 person company, uh, you know, tens of millions of ARR, no marketing. So I was building marketing from scratch, but in a different environment. I love building marketing teams from scratch. That's, you know, kind of what I do and what I did in my career. So that was kind of my fourth journey building marketing from scratch, but I got to do it at a later stage. Um, and then I, um, built that team from scratch. I was lucky enough to hire someone from hire people from all of my previous teams. So I hired someone from Ticketfly, someone from Astro, and then a, a few people from Asana. So that was really fun to kind of bring people back together again and, and, uh, and have a exciting team there. And, and that was kind of the, the last step in my, in my operating journey before I broke out on my own. Yeah. Why, um, you said you love building teams from scratch and it's obvious that you're great at it. So why did you decide to stop being an operator and move into investing and advising? Yeah, for me, it was just sort of at this inflection point in my career where I'd built out or I'd been the, you know, first or second or early marketer four times and, and had built out teams and done it at different, you know, size companies. And I like the building stage and I was like, okay, so I could go do this again or I could do something different. I've done this. Um, I've done this at companies that have been successful. I could go join a later stage company and be a head of marketing and maybe like see a company through like an IPO or something like that as a head of marketing. I haven't done that, but that that's like honestly less interesting to me. Um, and so for me, I was just at this point, I always kind of had like an, a desire to start a company, but I was always like wimped out on actually doing it. Like I always thought I would start a venture back company. And that's one of the reasons I went to business school or thought I went to business school. Again, you don't need to do that to start a company, but um you know, it's something I'd always considered. And I was always like, oh, maybe I'll do this now. And so, you know, it's just like, let me figure out what it is. And I actually explored for the first few months after Carta, like I explored starting something and worked with a friend on some startup ideas and didn't really get anywhere we were excited about. And then I started advising and consulting. And I, I like to, you know, it's, it's fun to pretend that I had this grand plan that I would advise and consult and angel invest and start to build out like content and community. And then that would lead to a fund that has a huge content and community part of it. But no, that wasn't the plan. I just started advising and consulting with a friend that of mine. That makes so much sense though. Yeah, it does. I mean, you can make, here's the thing. You can make a great story out of a lot of things. And, and, could, and it did yeah. start to take shape. Like there were potential paths that this could go in. Like this could lead to lots of different things. Um, you know, it could have easily led to I was working with a startup that I loved and I decided to go work there, you know, but that was one path and this was another. And so yeah. this was the path that we were on. I have a, a partner and all the things I do, Kathleen. And so Kathleen and I just started working together. We'd known each other for years. Her sister was actually on my team at Asana, which is how we met. And um, it all comes back to Asana and, you know, my camp friend who brought me there, you know. Um, yeah. So her sister had been on my team when she was at Box. And so her sister had introduced us. Kathleen was leading platform marketing at Box and I was at Asana and, you know, collaboration space. And so we, uh, we met that way. And so, yeah, it just, uh, it just kind of happened from there. Like yeah. it, it, there wasn't a master plan three years ago. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, so you went, you started advising startups and eventually you realized mm -hmm. you were repeating yourself over and over. So you started yes. a newsletter, mkt1.substack.com for those listening. Yep. What do you find that you're advising on? most of the time at, at this current stage of 
I guess, like the economy, B2B SaaS, like what, yeah. what do you find is coming up most prominently? I mean, I think no matter what, what I mean, the, it, we started advising uh, in 2020. Um, and so times were, well, times are weird because it was like pandemic and stuff. But in terms of like, you know, this was like peak startup valuation, all of this and, and, you know, raising money like crazy and like really fast time between rounds. I mean, it's almost easy to forget that that wasn't that long ago. Um, uh, but throughout, no matter if it was, you know, those times are now where it's like much harder to raise and there's longer time between rounds and all of that. The, the fact has remained the same for early stage companies, which we've worked with, and even the growth stage, um, which is that it's really hard to figure out when to hire, who to hire, how to hire your first marketer and set them up for success. So no matter what, no matter when you're raising, no matter when you bring on money, you're going to have to bring on a marketer at some point. And, and distribution or go to market and marketing is really, really important to startup success. In fact, I think it's kind of undervalued still as a thing. And uh, so many founders that we talk to are like, I hired a marketer, they're not here anymore. Like I hired a marketer and we're like, what happened? They're like, we hired the wrong person or the person didn't stay. Mm -hmm. We didn't set them up for success. Whatever it was, like they'd had a false start on marketing. Um, or, um, or they just like weren't really doing enough on the go-to-market side and they were like, we built this really great product. Nobody... I don't know how to get people to it. And so it all kind of came back to this hiring problem or this like resourcing problem, which maybe is a yeah. better word for so, it. So that's a big area where we help. Yeah. So I just, I recently had uh, Alexa from Pocus on the pod. Yeah. And she was saying one of her first hires was uh, Sandy for, as a marketer. And she was like, yeah, Sandy a lot is of amazing. my investors. Yeah. Uh, she amazing. said, yeah, a lot of my investors didn't agree with that decision. I was like, why not? That seems so obvious. And she said, yeah, but typically what investors are advising is like marketing should come later in the hire. Like you should build out product and engineering and sales or whatever. So how do you typically advise like I didn't know when that to she, hire your first marketer? I didn't know that she had that feedback from other investors. I actually talked to her about hiring a marketer prior to investing. So I, we invested in, in Pocus oh. the Series A through our funds. But I actually talked to her about hiring Sandy prior to that. I don't remember how we initially got connected, but I, I knew her a little bit before we invested. Um, and uh, I think um, I think investors lean towards hiring sales early on um, because it's easy to, easier to measure results of sales, um, much easier. They're at the end of the line, um, the go-to-market process. It's much easier to say, oh, we closed this deal um, it's much harder to say what are all the things that contributed to closing that deal. So it's much easier to measure results yeah. and it's easier to hire and to keep hiring for sales because all sales hires kind of like follow. There's like three architects. You have sort of archetypes. You have your like SDR, you have your like, you know, IC salesperson out there selling, you have your sales manager, right? Like, and, and it kind of is just like rinse and repeat. I mean, there's more nuance into exactly what you're hiring for and things like that. But in marketing, all the roles are different for a really long time. There's like 20 different roles. And so if not more. And so um, it's just an easier thing to do in a lot of ways. Um, but when you nail marketing, I think of growing sales and hiring sales as sort of like linear, like sales has a quota and you want to get to a certain amount of revenue. You can do like a relatively simple math equation. Maybe there's you're building in some efficiency over time, relatively simple equation to figure out how many salespeople you need or roughly. It's not as easy on the marketing side. 
Um, but you don't have to scale marketing linearly with your revenue. Um, so marketing does like one to many work throughout the funnel. They're kind of an accelerant for all the things you're doing on the growth side. And, um, and sometimes the driver of the things you're doing on the growth side. And so you can hire a few marketers and have like a mate, like a massively outsized impact. Whereas like salespeople can only have so many meetings in a day. Um, so marketing really allows you to sort of exponentially scale your go-to-market efforts when done right. And great marketing can make you seem a lot bigger than you are. So you can have like two or three marketing people and all of a sudden it can seem like your company is just way more established because everything's up level. You have great content, you have a great website, you have a great experience and people are going to think that there's more people that work at your company and it's bigger and more trustworthy than it is. So um, I think that marketing can be such an accelerant if you do it right early on. I mean, I'm not saying to go out and hire a marketer pre-seed, definitely not. I'm not even saying to go out and hire a marketer right after you raise a seed. But it is something that I think you you should do before or around the time of your Series A, depending on the space that you're in. And a company like Pocus, which is go-to-market focused and focused on companies that have a product-led or a self-serve motion or a hybrid motion, um, you got to show that you can win on all in all areas. Of go- you got to show that you're great at it, you know, to target yeah. those people. So Yeah. So how about... For startups, I imagine if they're trying to get started with marketing, their first thing they do should not be to try to do everything or try to hire a marketer right out of the gate, but at least like try to validate some channels. Yeah. How do you advise folks typically go about that process? Because what I've seen is they try to do anything and everything. Like they're doing content, they're doing SEO, they're doing paid, yeah. they're doing so, like organic social, email newsletter. How do you help them? Yeah figure out where to spend your time. A lot of the ways people start to do marketing is they just try to check all the boxes and do a little bit of everything. You're never going to find what works if you half-ass a million channels or a million different strategies. You got to figure out... The other thing that's not going to work is to just follow another company's playbook and be like... A lot of founders will say, oh, I talked to this founder and they did this and it worked really well, so I want to do that. I'm like, that company has a different go-to-market motion. They were building at a different time. They're five stages later than you. Um... You know, their audience is slightly different, like whatever it might be. Like you can't just like blindly follow another playbook Um, or even like you can't follow another company's playbook. And there's a few reasons why. Like the I kind of think about it as there are and I'm getting back to your question of like, how do you kind of test channels? But I think there are three key drivers to your marketing strategy. or three big inputs, I should say, that you need to take into consideration before you figure out what you're going to do. So before you start like just going and doing all the things that you think you need to do, like SEO and newsletter and all this stuff, you've got to like take these three things to account. Um, one is just sort of like the environment that you're operating in and who you're targeting. So who's your audience? What's your product? What market are you in? And so really understanding your audience. How does your audience buy? Um, what is your audience? What, what do they consume? What are the big problems in your workflow? Not just like who they are, like demographics of who they are. A lot of times people think they're doing audience or developing customer personas and all they do is like state the demographics. No, it's like, what's the behavior of this audience? More like jobs to be done. Yeah, you can use jobs to be done. Yeah, uh, but it's just more like what what is their day-to-day? What is the work? What is the work day of your audience? What do they care about? What are the problems? What are the spreadsheets that they use is one of my favorite questions to ask. Because wherever there's a spreadsheet, there's a template opportunity. Um, So that's one of my favorite questions. 
what what spreadsheets do you have open right now or google sheets or you know whatever it might be some might have google, and do you have google sheets or do you have excel that's another good question um yeah for understanding how you know back in time i thought you were asking me i was about to are. screen share and show all my sheets <laughs> no I, I would assume you have sheets. no i i mean i am curious what spreadsheets you have because i'm always curious what spreadsheets people use because wherever there's a spreadsheet there's an opportunity for a better product for it um but we usually we all have spreadsheets that we're using um with some exceptions um uh anyway where where was i i got hung up the on what spreadsheets. oh market. yeah the three the three the three sort of inputs or drivers so yeah it's it's deeply understanding your audience the market that you're in product that can include competition that's like product marketing research is another way to describe that but mm-hmm. specifically audience product market research um the other because much like you have to build your product for your audience you have to build your marketing for your audience um maybe yeah. that's obvious but you need to put in like that kind of that level of thought for it right like it's it, it needs- obvious well, yeah, but it's like you're going to do all of this research to figure out what product to build. You have to do a little bit of research to figure out what marketing you should build. If that makes sense. Yeah. The other big input um, is your go-to-market motion. Um, and you got to figure that out first. But like, how are you starting? Are you starting through a sales-driven motion? Are you starting with a self-serve motion? Do you have a free plan? What does that look like? You got to figure some of that stuff out. And the reason that matters is just the channels you use are going to be different. And the, the marketing tactics you use are going to be wildly different depending on how people are going to purchase or how customers are going to purchase. So I'm actually writing a newsletter on that topic right now. By the time this comes out, that newsletter will probably be out. Um, Just how your go-to-market motion really impacts who you hire, what the role of the marketing team is, Mm. et cetera. Like the role of the marketing team with different B2B motions, again, and I'm talking mostly about B2B, I should always caveat that, but the, um, the difference between the way that people think about, oh, B2C and B2B marketing is so different. I kind of think about if your primary motion is self-serve versus sales-led, I kind of think that that difference is just as big. Like mm-hmm. you need to hire people that understand your go-to-market motion, not just understand B2B, like specifically under, understand, are you primarily going to be self-serve or first or primarily going to be sales-led? Um, kind of everybody has a hybrid motion these days. So I think about what's the primary way. Is it primarily self-serve or primarily sales-led? Um, and then the third, so where are we at? We have these three drivers of marketing strategy. We have sort of product marketing research, which is product, product audience market research. And then we have go-to-market motion. And then the third one is something that I call marketing advantages. You could call these distribution advantages. These are sort of the built-in dynamics of your business Um that give you where you have sort of like unfair advantages. And this is like harder to spot, but we we have like nine of them that we define, but it's essentially like, what are the innate dynamics or characteristics of your business that can help you grow really, really fast? Where should you lean in? And this is gonna help you pick your channels in like a huge way as well, which is like, do we have potential for network effects? Do we have potential for product virality? Do we have, so that's on sort of like the product side. Do we have potential to win or create, sort of own a category, and what is that category? Um, you know, kind of are we the the first to come in and do and, and build this category, or are we building a 10x better or something? What, what is that thing? Can we own a category? That's one. Another one is like, do we have a very clear wedge in where we're starting with a specific audience or a specific product, and then we're going to expand from there? All of these sort of dynamics in your business matter a ton to your marketing strategy. So I think it's helpful to identify these marketing advantages. I have a newsletter on this as well. Um, 
And I just write newsletters, so I don't have to explain things out loud anymore, you know? Like, I, I already wrote about it. Just go read it. Um, but uh, uh, these three things. So really understanding these three things. And this might sound like it's going to take you forever. It's not. These all, things are all related. They all kind of come back to, to doing that research on your audience, product, and market. But, oh, another big one that I should mention on the marketing advantage side is like, is there something going on in the ecosystem that I'm playing where I can use other people to help me spread the word? So I call this like influencers but it's not influencers like instagram influencers it's things like carta use lawyers to drive growth lawyers have a huge influence on the cap table software that you use and how you manage your cap table so if you partner with lawyers and offer referral programs through lawyers you can grow much faster you can go through lawyers to get to all of your customers similarly like um i think zero like with an x the accounting company did this with like accounting firms i think um, yeah. there's, there's a bunch of examples, like you can, you know, if you're targeting marketers, you can go through agencies, what's going on. Are there, are there sort of ecosystem influencers? I love that one. Or, you know, channel sales opportunities or things like that. All three of these things have a major impact on where you should start in terms of your marketing channels. Um, Maybe so that's help. where I start. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see this mistake a lot when I work with clients where they're like, yeah, we're targeting, Fortune 500 executives, and we want to do SEO, and I'm like, that's not yes, going to work for it's you. It's not going to work. Uh, <laughs> like you, sh you shouldn't be writing about like what is like contract lifecycle management because like college students probably Google it, like entry level employees yeah. googling that. They're exactly. never going to buy your product. Yeah. And I tell them like, you should actually be probably produce. Well, I'm I'm curious what you would recommend, but I say, hey, you should probably write stuff that the executives at your ICP actually want to hear about like, like how to manage contracts or negotiate contracts during a recession. Like that's probably a lot more interesting to them than these typical SEO yeah. content things. Or it might so, even be true that fortune 500 executives aren't spending a lot of time reading Googling. these types. <laughs> yeah. Reading these. I mean, maybe they're Googling, but I think everybody, you know, but they're maybe not spending a lot of time reading th about these things, you know, oftentimes, and you'll probably ask me this in this podcast, people are like, what business book have you read recently? And I'm like, I'm reading a lot of like quick things on the internet, but I don't have like, I spend a lot of time doing work related things when I am reading books. Like, let me tell you, it's not often a business book these days. I read a lot of business books earlier in my career, but like, you know, I, I, I'll read a few a year, a couple a year, but like, it's not the primary thing I'm doing with my free time. Um, but I am reading a lot of stuff. So you got to just like understand what's the behavior of these people. Um, but it could be, I mean, Fortune 500 executives, they talk to each other. They listen to each other. They want recommendation from other, they, they have like FOMO on what other, you know, CEOs are doing. So how can you tap into that? How can you, you know, figure out what, what the gap is or what they're seeking um, in terms of how to get information? Um and so that really comes down to that first bucket of like, where is your audience? What are they doing? What are their jobs to be done? What are their pain points? How can you fill a gap in their work day? Um, yeah. 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 It seems like I, I often see a mismatch of maybe that first one is like product marketing slash business model and go to market motion tend to be misaligned. Maybe yes. just based. Yeah. They're Googling like what they should do for yeah. marketing or they're listening to some podcasts. Right. Like this one, this is like, like, don't oh, follow I should go do that playbook. Thing. Don't follow a playbook. Yeah. Like, like take these three big inputs, like do the, the first, the first of my inputs is kind of three inputs in and of itself, but like <laughs> one A, B, and C is like audience research, not just who are the demographics. It's like, again, what spreadsheets are you using? Like questions like that. Um, yeah. 
and like what market are you in, all of these things, that bucket and the go-to-market motion, you've got to start there. And at least if you're going to follow a playbook, follow a playbook for a company that aligns there similarly. But if you, if again, if you look at a company that has the exact same audience in the exact same market with the exact same go-to-market motion and you follow that playbook, you're going to look exactly the same as your competitor and that's not going to work either. So that's where like these marketing advantages and where can we really win on distribution comes in as that like third driver. Yeah. I want to ask about how you help startups set the right marketing goals. And Mm -hmm. I ask this because we often get folks coming to us saying, Hey, we want to grow our traffic. And my question is always, why do you want to grow traffic? And Mm -hmm. it always leads down to revenue. (laughs) It's just, they keep, thinking traffic's the the end goal in itself or like the metric. So, I mean, this is kind of a selfish question, but how do you typically talk folks yeah. through that? I mean, I actually think that like you're lucky if they even say their goal is traffic. So often I see marketing goals and it's like, write 10 blog posts. I pick on this goal all the time. Mm. It's like my favorite goal to pick on. Well, why the hell do you want to write 10 blog posts? It's actually, <laughs> you know, you can write one blog post that does the work of 10. Um, I write, for instance, this is like a selfish example, but I write a monthly newsletter. It is a deep dive. It is a long read. I try to make them as quality as possible. Um, I probably get more traffic on that one than I would if I wrote four short articles a month, like if I wrote weekly. Um, uh, so that's just an example to say that like, it's not about the quantity of things that you write or create or do. It's not about activity. It's about impact. So take coming back to this example of like, write 10 blog posts. Well, why? Well, I want to get traffic. Well, why? I want to get traffic because I want to drive conversion. Okay. Well, like who you're trying to drive conversion, you're trying to drive signups or request demo or whatever with what audience. Um, and you know, getting down to like, what am I trying to do is really important for your metrics goals. So your metrics goals, you want them to be impact focused, not quantity focused. You want to kind of leave the how we get there on the metrics goals, like, you know, leave that open for kind of like experimentation and figuring things out and not like set a useless goal, like write 10 posts when it's really about driving X leads from content this quarter, right? Like that's a much better goal with a conversion rate to um, opportunity of X percent. That's the other thing. People set metrics goals and they don't put a conversion rate threshold. So it's like drive a hundred qualified leads. I can drive a hundred qualified leads. I can just change the lead scoring criteria. And now I have a hundred qualified leads. Tell me what qualified means. (laughs) Yeah. But if you say I'm going to drive hundred qualified leads that convert to opportunity at 10% or like whatever it might be, like that's a much better goal because it's, you're ensuring quality to the next step of the funnel. So I always yeah. tell people do not set a metrics goal without a conversion rate threshold. The other mistake I see people make is they only set metrics goals. Um, this is again, back to like, you know, in sales, you kind of are setting like quarterly revenue goals and that's the goal and you're driving to it. Marketing's different. Marketing is again, full funnel. Marketing needs to be focused on short and long-term revenue. And to focus on long-term revenue, you're really like filling the top of the funnel and like making people aware of what you're doing and things like that. So there's a lot more activities than just what I'm going to do to drive and hit numbers this quarter. That's important. And that's a piece you know, that's a big piece of the goals you're setting, but I think you need to set four types of goals. You need to set 
your KPI goals, which we just talked about. You need to set project goals, which are sort of like, what are the big things? You don't need to set a project goal for like every task you're going to do, but what are the two or three things that we're doing this quarter that could drive step change or non-linear growth in the future? What are those things? Depending on your, even when your team is huge though, it's still only like two or three big things. What are the big sort of cross-marketing initiatives or even cross-team initiatives that you are doing that are going to move the needle, that could move the needle long-term and really cause just like a change in our trajectory? You need to write those down. If you don't write those down, or if you don't set those as goals, rather, um, what's going to happen is you're never going to make room for the big bets. You're going to be doing the small incremental things to try to hit your goal that quarter, and you're never going to take big bets. So you've got to have project goals to take those big bets. doesn't mean there can't be numbers around these project goals, but like you got to have these specific sort of longer-range things. And then I also think it's really important to set... Um, some metricals around experimentation or some goals around experimentation and tests. The problem with, and maybe these aren't like OKR level goals, maybe this is one level down, but you've got to also make room for these tiny experiments because when you're testing a new channel or you're going after a new audience, you're not going to hit the same performance metrics that you're going to have with your core audience that you've been optimizing and, and working towards over time. So if I launch a new channel, it's like not going to meet the performance of my old channel immediately. And so you'll never like make room for new things to get into the mix if you're holding it to the same standard as the stuff you've already been working on. So that's like experiment goals. And then the fourth type of goal is just like operations or foundational goals. At Asana, we would call this like grease, like G-R-E-A-S-E. Um, I don't know why it would be grease like the country. I'm not sure why what I spelled that, that out. <laughs> grease, like you're greasing the wheels. So at, at Asana, we have this notion of like polish and it doesn't stand for anything. I don't know why I spelled it out. I just felt the need. I don't know why people would think it was is like grease, um, was like a, the country. It's an acronym or something. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just literally like there was like grease work and polish work at Asana. I like really like, we actually had like a grease week every, we didn't do quarters. We did like things called episodes at Asana, which were like trimesters. That's a whole other conversation. But one of the things that was cool was we did like Grease Week, which is like operations work, which is improve all the things that are behind the scenes that aren't user-facing. So that could be hiring, implementing a new tool. Like it's your, yeah, I call them ops goals. So yeah, yeah. I've taken this concept of Grease that we did at Asana where we'd have a Grease Week and do all these things. Um, and... And uh, say so you need to have these obstacles. These are the work you need to do to build the foundation. So essentially, these are the foundational things you need to do so that you can hit your metrics goals, do your projects, and do your experiments. Um, and so when you combine all four of those types of goals, I think you have the right mix of marketing activities and the right balance of short-term, long-term um, experimentation or testing and scaling and all of these things that you need to balance on the market. Yeah. So. What are examples of these longer term big bets um, and how do you advise folks on those? It seems like a lot of, even before talks of recession and the economy and stuff, it seemed like folks were kind of hesitant to do those bigger bets because there wasn't some immediate ROI that you could measure to justify it, which I understand that that fear, but curious what, what examples there are and how you advise yeah. folks think about that. Yeah, if you don't do these projects, you're just never gonna gonna get off sort of like the current treadmill that you're on, right? Like, uh, it's like you would never just maybe you would, but you think about companies that have like the same product features. Often, when I'm talking to founders about marketing, I put it in product terms because mm -hmm. they tend to understand product. So, 
um, for instance, it's like to scale as a company, you would never just like keep optimizing the same or keep improving the same features that you have. Like that's part of what you would do. But like even public companies are constantly like you're launching new products, you're launching new features, you're building out your product more, right? Like that's a no brainer that you're not just maybe some quarters you're spending more time improving your existing product and maybe some quarters you're spending more time launching new products, but it's always a mix. And marketing is the same way. Like you're going to constantly be improving the things that you're doing that are driving growth, keeping the lights on, like staying on this like treadmill that you're on. It's not a treadmill. It's like an upward sloping treadmill. I don't know enough about fitness equipment to know what that is, but like, you know, you're going to, if you keep doing these things, like you're probably going to grow like fairly linearly. Um, if it, you know, if you're going to grow at all. Um, so you have to put in these new things that can get you either to, so the way I think about these project goals are what are things that you're going to get you to a new audience or a new subset of your TAM are going to expand that out. What are things that are going to uh, sort of like increase the amount of revenue from the customers that you have? What are things that are going to um, make you stand out over competitors? Like what are these things that are really going to like cause net new growth. So I talk a lot about these like marketing advantages um, and things like that. And, and, you know, like, is it that, so a project goal, let me, let me actually like give you examples, but project goal is like, um, you know, we've been running like one-off events for a really long time. Um, we've been testing that. We've had that as an experiment goal. We've done a bunch of tests around, around events. I think now we're seeing, you know, this, this, uh, cluster of people that we always have. Like, we think we can have a community now. We're not just going to, like, launch into doing a community, but we think now we're ready to have a Slack community. Mm -hmm. That's a project to launch that. You can't just, like, passively launch a Slack community. You need to set a goal around that, but you need to probably start with some other examples. I wish I hadn't picked community because it's, like, such a buzzword and a thing, but it was top of mind. Let me pick a, let me pick another one. Another one might be... Wait, wait. So, because yeah. community is such a buzzword, I want to stick on that one. Okay. How do you validate this? How do you decide, yep, we're going to go... Yes. Create a Slack thing or a Discord or... All right. Well, here's the thing. The reason are. this is top of mind is because I have been delaying launching a Slack community for MPT1 for a year um, because I keep being like, are we ready yet? I also have like very limited <laughs> bandwidth because, you know, it's just two of us and we have a fund as well and all of these things. So I think about this a lot and we're definitely ready. It's just a, it's just a time constraint now. But... Um, the way that you validate it, I think, is in a few ways. One, your audience has to be an audience that is seeking this out. So, like, some audiences just aren't. Um, but, for instance, there are gaps where, like, I see this as a marketing advantage if your audience is, like, really desperate for, like, great community and content. I was just talking about this yesterday with Kathleen. I think there's a huge gap in um, a community for women sales leaders, I say this because a lot of sales content and communities are very bro-y, which, yeah. which it's very, very, bro very bro-y. And I think it leaves out a subset of marketers that don't like this sort of like, or sorry, a subset of salespeople that don't like this like bombastic bro-y vibe. So, and I think it, it, it explicitly like kind of leaves out sort of like, you know, women in a lot of ways it's like male dominated sort of like well anyway all of this is to say this is an opportunity for like a women in sales community but there's pockets like this and people that are just underserved by the existing community so i think you need to seek that out you need to see if there's a pocket and see if there's demand for that 
And the way you see if there's demand for this or the demand to launch community is I think you do a bunch, you do one-off events. You do like, I'm going to do this talk or this webinar, not like in-person huge events, but like, I'm going to do this webinar. I'm going to do this talk. I'm going to do this AMA with a person. And you see if you can draw people in. If you can't draw people into a one hour, highly curated or highly thought about planned sort of event with like a great guest, you're not going to have an always on Slack community. Like if you can't do it for like an hour, you can't do it always. So you've got to kind of start with these things and see how it works. You also have to have a goal of your community. Is your goal of your community to get people in that aren't your customers? Is it to get customers to be more involved and upgrade and spread the word? Is your goal to actually create content from your community and use the community to generate content? Is the goal to distribute content? Like, why are you doing this? Um, so you've got to like figure that out as well. But yeah, I think the best way to test it, the simplest answer I have to this is just like do, do some one-off events with your target audience and see what, what happens and make sure you have a clear goal. Yeah. Um, so when's the MKT1 community being launched? Uh, uh, <laughs> this is me summer, being your accountability buddy. Summer, <laughs> summer? No, I have several accountability buddies on it. Summer. Uh, let me tell you, when you have a fund and you're fundraising, it's a pretty all-consuming process. I and bet, so, yeah. uh, you know, it's just like balancing this all out. But um, yeah, the other thing is like I have, we have Slack groups for people that have taken... Um, our, my primary course, which is a five-week course for early and growth stage marketing leaders. And there's a Slack group for each one of those. And so part of it is seeing like, do those run after the course and do people keep talking to each other? And the answer is yes, they do. And actually one of my cohorts has like self-organized to continue to meet monthly after the course ended. Cool. And so seeing things like that is like, okay, like this is the sign. So we're, you know, we're baby stepping our way there. So some summer, summer uh which is a it. long season depending on how you define it so we'll see <laughs> see what happens great yeah. well i know we're coming up on time and i have so many other questions i'd love to ask you so perhaps there's a part two that comes in a couple months or a couple yeah weeks. sure sorry I, I i give really long answers and i talk a lot so it's hard I, to get i to love it i think this is the stuff that folks are here for so maybe yeah. we'll we'll close out with some closing questions and we'll we'll wrap this up and then I will follow up to, to do another episode together. Cool. Sounds great. All right. So what's one opinion you have about business you think people would disagree with? Yeah, I um the the obvious one is that I think that distribution and marketing are really, really important and I think they're massively undervalued. But considering that like your audience for this is primarily marketers, they probably don't think that. So um I guess another one that I have, um, and, and I think that this is maybe understood, but it's not practiced, which is quality over quantity, especially in marketing. Um, a lot of think it's, people think it's like the amount of things that you put out, or that's what they do in practice. And it's really, it's a quality game, or it's a, placing strategic bets uh, 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 to, to, to get a few winners or something like that. But yeah, that's a marketing one. Great. What is one impactful piece of advice you've been given? Could be life or professional kind of yeah, thing to me. I, I think the advice, which isn't necessarily from a certain person, it's just like a, a phrase that I've learned in my career, however many years in. Um, I guess I said earlier how many years in I am. I started working in 2006. Um, so 17 years in to my career, trust your gut is the best piece of advice I've, I could give. Um, all of the big mistakes I've made in my career 
or all of the impact, the mistakes that mattered, all the things that like impacted me in a negative way have been situations where I haven't trusted my gut, where I've like known I'm making the wrong choice and I've done it anyway. And that could be from like mm. people we've chosen to work with, people I've chosen to hire. I mean, yes, I'm a data driven person. I'm like a math. I was like a math geek growing up. Like I'm a data driven person and you need to take data into account and you need to analyze things. But at the end of the day, like you have a gut feeling that something is wrong. I'm never going to regret it if I say no because I had like a bad feeling about something. So it's especially true with investing. Like, you know, people are like, how do you not have FOMO about angel investments? I'm like, because I get conviction. And if I say no, especially on like a values alignment thing or an area where like, I just had a bad gut feeling. Like I have just like told myself in my brain, I'm never going to regret it if I make a decision because I had like a bad gut feeling because it's usually right. Um, so yeah, and sometimes you just got to throw out the data and just trust your, trust your gut. Yeah, I love that. I am guilty of often not trusting my gut enough. Yeah. To, for some reason, I don't know, we're conditioned to not listen. We're told that that's not a good thing to listen to, but I've, like, it's yeah. worked out for me too. If you have a bad <laughs> feeling about like something, like it's probably not going to get any better. Like this is yeah. like, yeah, it, it doesn't usually get better if you have a bad feeling about something yeah. or someone. Like, or there some needs situation. to be like a, dra like a drastic 180 in the situation for you to feel good about it. Yeah, I think. yeah, um, exactly. Trust your gut. In all things, that's that's life and business. It's it's also like yeah. definitely good advice on like dating. So you know, if you if you uh, if you try to date for someone for so long and you know it's not right, or you like go if you're like on a first date and then you're like, oh, this isn't going great, but like maybe it'll go okay. I have like a bad feeling about this. I don't think I like this person, but like maybe on paper they're great. I'll go on a second date. You're just gonna waste your time. So you know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What is one book you'd recommend where people read? Yeah, so I said earlier that like I I I felt I always uh, this question always makes me so nervous, and it's not because I don't read; it's just because I feel like a lot of these answers have been said before. I go back to like business classics when it comes to business books. Like I still think that like Crossing the Chasm and Tipping Point are amazing books, and have like shaped some of my like foundational thinking on marketing. Um, I also think like a good quick read that's really old is like The Purple Cow by Seth Godin. It's just like very basic okay. around just like figuring out what makes you exceptional or makes you stand out. And I just like keep that with me a lot. Like what's what's the purple cow here? Um, so it's just something that I've like, I don't even remember a lot of the details of the book, but it's something that's entered my lexicon personally. It's just like, what's the purple cow here? Um, which is like, what's your advantage? How can you win? What's the thing? Um, but the book I'm reading right now, which is always how I choose to answer this question because I get stressed out when yes. I try to like think back. I just started reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is not a business book. It's a novel. And it's... Uh, you know what's crazy? Yeah. I just asked someone what they're reading yesterday and that's the book they're reading too. It's like so, a book that a lot of people are reading. I just okay. started it. I like couldn't find my okay. Kindle for a while. I read on a Kindle and I couldn't find it for a while and I just found it again. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll pick back up. So I started reading it and then I stopped. Um, you know, when you read on a Kindle and you Is lose your Kindle, it's kind of a it's kind of a yeah. bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't if you don't have books, you can't just pick up another book. Confession: <laughs> Even though I work out of my house and I'm in my house a lot of the time, I lose things all the time. Just like within my house, and I like put tiles on them, and then the tiles run out of batteries, and I can't find them. Like I'm I'm really bad about losing things in my own home so yeah that, that's impressive <laughs> my my yeah. girlfriend does the same thing and i'm like how do you always lose the car keys 
Oh there's yeah. There's a hook right next to the door. Yeah, there's okay, so you know that like there's always the memes like there's always two people in relationships. It's true. There's the person that loses everything in their own home and there's the person that doesn't know how that's possible. And I am the one that loses everything yeah. and my partner is like every time we leave the house it's like I can't find something. I can't find the sunglasses, I can't find the keys, yeah. I can't find the shoes I want to wear. And she's like her house like it's not like we're living in a mansion here, just to be clear. I am not living in a in a very large home here. It's not that big. Uh, but uh yeah, it's um it's a it's a personality trait. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I can empathize with both sides there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Where can't they find me on the internet, David, is the better question. No, right, I feel right. like I, I feel like I, I've, I've been putting a, a lot more effort into my LinkedIn presence lately. It's pretty nerdy, but uh, yeah. So um, yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I've, I'm trying to be everywhere lately, but uh, no, uh, our website for all the Things I do is mkt1.co, stands for Market One. Um, and then uh, our newsletter is newsletter.mkt1.co or mkt1.substack.com, whatever you want. And then, uh, so those are the two, main, the two main things where you can find everything. And then on LinkedIn, I'm just slash in slash Emily Kramer. On Twitter, I'm slash Emily Kramer common name but i got there early you know so i have my name on all of these places and i have not heard yeah. someone actually say a slash before slash in slash Emily yeah no i i said Chris that slash i said that and i was like what am i doing you know i think i think um yeah but you don't say at for linkedin how do you even talk about who you are on linkedin i don't know i guess your name <laughs> But like you got, yeah, it's weird. But I guess I don't know how many Emily Kramers there are on LinkedIn though. So maybe there's a reason. There's a lot of Emily Kramers. In college, actually, in my freshman year, there was another Emily Kramer, which was really confusing. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's common. All right. Well, I, okay. At Emily Kramer on LinkedIn and Twitter. I've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes, David. Don't give me shit about hashtag for slash. I I appreciate you, Emily. (laughs) Emily, it was a pleasure to have you on a show. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks to everyone who just listened to me talk for over an hour. So I appreciate it. (laughs) 